What role has Israel played in the worsening humanitarian situation on the Gaza Strip? How has Israeli colonial control of Palestinian land undermined their ability to adapt to the impacts of climate change? How abusively did Israeli authorities deal with peaceful activists trying to bring supplies to Gaza this past summer? Why is Canada not only ignoring its obligations under international law where Israel is concerned, but assisting in Israeli violations? What can be done to force Israel to end its abuses of the Palestinian population? This week, as we begin a new season of the Global Research News Hour radio program, we turn our attention to the Israel-Palestine conflict and the impunity with which the Israeli settler state continues to conduct its actions. Our guests include Suha Jarar, a researcher with the Palestinian human rights organization Al-Haq, Larry Commodore, an indigenous activist participating in last summer's Freedom Flotilla, and Dimitri Lascaris, Canadian lawyer, journalist, and activist, and board member of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. On this week's program, Israel-Palestine, the humanitarian consequences of occupation. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 14th, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Agakin, the homeland of the Métis, and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The fact that the Islamists became the de facto winners of the 1979 revolution in Iran tends to support the view of scholars such as Tariq Ali. Islamism emerged as a political force in the Middle East to fill the political vacuum created by imperial policies in the region. The suppression of progressive, secular forces impeded the emergence of a modernizing historic bloc. Instead, the way was opened for the Islamists to install a socially repressive regime and economic, political, and social underdevelopment continue to characterize Iranian society. Some local elements may deserve consideration as part of the cause root of underdevelopment in the periphery. However, the limitation of any approach that focuses predominantly on local actors in the periphery is that these are abstracted from material relations shaped by more powerful players such as imperialist powers and past colonial subordination and or ongoing economic exploitation and subordination is downplayed or even ignored. That comes from the article Gramsci, Passive Revolution and 20th Century Iran, by Marzia Azgari Vash and Karim Purhamzavi, posted September 12th. The U.S. military defeats are products of a fatal flaw. Imperial planners cannot successfully replace indigenous people with colonial rulers and their local lookalikes. Wars are not won by high-tech weapons directed by absentee officials divorced from the people. They do not share their sense of peace and justice. Exploited people, 
informed by a spirit of communal resistance and self-sacrifice, have demonstrated greater cohesion than rotating soldiers eager to return home and mercenary soldiers with dollar signs in their eyes. The lessons of lost wars have not been learned by those who preach the power of the military-industrial complex, which makes, sells, and profits from weapons, but lack the mass of humanity with lesser arms, but with great conviction, who have demonstrated their capacity to defeat imperial armies. The stars and stripes fly in Washington, but remain folded in embassy offices in Kabul, Tripoli, Damascus, and in other lost battlegrounds. That comes from the article, The U.S., the Century of Lost Wars by Professor James Petrus, posted September 12th. In his book, Al Saud, Musil recalls a frightful event that for reason we have yet to come to terms with failed to rise but an eyebrow among nations, least of all Muslim nations, the destruction of Islam's sacrosanct Blackstone. The Blackstone, which is believed by some to have been brought down from the heavens by Angel Gabriel, is center stage to the Hajj pilgrimage, as every pilgrim must begin circumambulating the Kaaba from its exact location. Today, only fragments remain of a relic cherished by over a billion men and women across the world. This is not the only affront al-Saud carried out against the very faith it says to hold custodianship over, and Islam only sits one victim among many of such broad intolerance. From the ransacking of the Prophet Muhammad's last resting place, to the destruction of al-Baqi Cemetery in Medina, to the destruction of temples, churches, holy relics predating Islam, the once colorful and buoyant history of the Hijaz, now known as Saudi Arabia, and to a greater extent the Middle East, has been reduced to a dying flicker. That comes from the article, Is Our World Cultural Heritage Worth Saving? Activists Call Out Saudi Arabia on the Disappearing of History, by Catherine Shakdam, posted September 11th. A little more than a generation from now, in 2050, up to a billion people are expected to have departed countries decimated by climate change. When the 21st century reaches its end, anywhere up to 2 billion people could be forced from their homelands. The pace of climate change has shocked even experienced climate experts, while mounting evidence whittles down the ever-dwindling band of skeptics. Climate analyst Katrin Meisner of the University of New South Wales in Australia said in July that the speed of warming is, quote, much faster than anything encountered in Earth's history, in terms of rate of change, we are in uncharted waters, unquote. That comes from the article, Climate refugees will vastly outweigh recent migrant numbers. Hundreds of millions will be displaced by 2050 due to ch climate change. By Shane Quinn, posted September 11th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The ongoing occupation of Palestine and efforts to maintain that occupation is having dramatic impacts on the humanitarian situation of the Palestinians under the control of Israeli forces. The situation in Gaza being a case in point following assaults on the civilian infrastructure and the economic strangulation of the country, estimates are that the Gaza Strip will be unlivable in 2020. Worsening the situation is the impacts of climate change.
To get a better understanding of these indicators, the Global Research News Hour contacted a Palestinian researcher. Suha Jarrar is a Palestinian human rights researcher and advocate, and currently the environmental and gender policy researcher at Al Haq human rights organization Ramallah, Palestine. Suha obtained her Bachelor of Arts degree in environmental and gender studies from Trent University in Canada and her Master of Science in climate change science and policy from the University of Sussex. Suha's master's research focused on climate change adaptation in the occupied Palestinian territory. She joins us now from Regina. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Now, I noticed that uh, you mentioned in a recent speech in Winnipeg, not only that Gaza will be unlivable in 2020, but that it is already unlivable. Can you elaborate on some of the conditions the population of the Gaza Strip is facing right now on a daily basis? Absolutely. So the Gaza Strip right now is under um, 11, um, is entering its 11th year of closure, uh, complete blockade by land, sea and air imposed by the Israeli authorities since 2007. All the restrictions have begun before 2007, um, since the early 90s. They have intensified um, since the uh, um, parliamentarian elections of the Palestinians um, uh, and with Hamas winning the elections. Uh, so imposing collective punishment and restricting movement and um, um, to and from the Gaza Strip has created a very dire humanitarian crisis. Um, there are um, restrictions on the flow of electricity or providing electricity, which Israel controls. Um, right now in the Gaza Strip, the average day um, where electricity is, is up and running uh, is almost um, as, as low as four hours per day. This, of course, impacts the health sector. It impacts people's everyday uh, lives and, and survival in the Gaza Strip. So the situation is pretty dire, impacting all aspects of life. Um, we're talking about also high and extremely high poverty rates for the Gaza Strip. Um, unemployment has reached almost 42% in comparison to 29% in 2011. Um, and there are in the supply of water as well. Almost 96% of the water in the Gaza Strip is not fit for human consumption. Um, this, of course, um, is, is, um, is the situation, as we can imagine, for the average Palestinian civilian living um, in the Gaza Strip um, um, is facing life in an open air prison where they cannot get in and out. There is also um, um, immediate need for development, especially after with the aftermath of the assaults that happened in Gaza in the past few, few years. Uh, but Israel is imposing very restrictive conditions on the imports of construction material, including uh, cement, including wood. Um, uh, so the, the, the term de-development for the Gaza Strip has been used uh, consistently by the UN because there are signs of de-development. There is no room for development in any sector. Um, and of course, the agricultural sector and the water sectors are impacted greatly, um, which um, impacts people's right to health and sanitation, um, and um, and of course their access to to resources that are necessary for uh, the natural development of human beings. Mm -hmm. 
Now, on top of those uh, indicators, one thing we hear about very rarely is the impacts of climate change on uh, the overall situation. Uh, it's been said that climate change disproportionately affects poor and disadvantaged populations. Could you describe some of the, the climate-related impacts being suffered by the people of Gaza and their ability to adapt to those uh, impacts? Yes. So uh, the objection or the projection story um, for the climate change um, patterns in the Gaza Strip are similar to the projections in that region. And the Intergovernmental Panel on uh, Climate Change, the IPCC, has predicted there there is going to be, and these are also observed impacts already, but they're going to intensify in the near future. There's going to be increases in uh, high in, in temperatures, uh, decreases in rainfall precipitation, uh, as well as more frequent extreme weather events. Uh, this is in addition to the seasonal flooding that the Gaza Strip um, faces uh, every winter. Uh, this, of course, creates a lot of risks related to these climatic changes. These risks are um, um, have to do with food insecurity, um, further water shortages, poor hygiene and sanitation, as well as many other health risks. Um, the the what you said about the vulnerability to climatic changes um, in relation to the socioeconomic and political situation, there's definitely um, um, a relationship there, because people, um, poor people, people who are unable to adapt to climate change by by implementing the simplest uh, uh, tools for adaptation have a very high sensitivity to the um, impacts and the risks posed by climate change. They have low adaptive capacity, so their capacity and ability to cope uh, is very low. And they are, of course, um, um, highly vulnerable um, and have uh, low levels of resilience. Um, what that means, if we're going to look at the UN definition of vulnerability, the UN defines vulnerability as the degree uh, to which people um, are are able or unable to, uh, sorry, unable to cope with the adverse impacts of climate change. Um, and in the case of the Gaza Strip, um, adaptation, or not just in the case of in any in, in any part of the world, adaptation requires action uh, by countries and by stakeholders, and it also requires control over movement. It requires control over land and resources, which is not the case in the Gaza Strip. So, if we're going to talk, for example, about um, addressing water shortages by um, building desalination units or um, by um, creating water water harvesting tools or digging water har harvesting pools by resorting to alternative energy, by resorting to drought-resistant crops or building flood defenses, Gaza is unable to implement any of those because of the restrictions on imports of construction material, because of restrictions um, um, on control over natural resources imposed by Israel, agricultural land, 17% um, of the agricultural land um, is located in the buffer zone, or what Israel calls the buffer zone in the Gaza Strip, where Palestinians have no access to. So in relation to possible adaptation, we cannot isolate the political reality 
any discussion on climate change from the political reality in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, you know, mentioning the water and the, the resources, uh, it, it seems clear that uh, you've got a settler colonial arrangement where the settlers have control and the, uh, the, the colonized largely do not. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about the, the interplay between uh, that these climate impacts are having in, that in, in the instance of the, the, the instance and the brutality you may say, of, of settler colonial violence on Gaza and the occupied territories generally? Um, absolutely. Um, well, the situation is, is, is different, for example, in the Gaza Strip and, and in the West Bank. There are so many similarities as to how that um, uh, impact is, is visible. In the Gaza Strip, for example, Israel has withdrew its uh, settler population from the Gaza Strip in 2005, but Israel remains or still has effective control over the Gaza Strip, including control over borders, control over sea, and uh, control over air. So Israel, of course, has effective control in that region and is contributing to the policy or intensifying the policy of, of de-development in the Gaza Strip. In the West Bank, for example, um, we can see the difference between um, people's ability to adapt and, and the adaptive capacity of people between settlers uh, who are illegally residing in the West Bank and nearby Palestinian communities, particularly in Area C, which is under the full jurisdiction of Israel and uh, is under effective control uh, uh, by Israel. So when we when we look at the differences and we see um, so many technologies, alternative energy, very, very green spaces, uh, occupied, illegally occupied by settlers on Palestinian land versus an extremely dry, um, um, de-developed um, um, or extremely dry and de-developed communities nearby who are unable to carry out their agricultural activity, their herding activity, we can see that there is uh, um, um, a, a very clear discrimination policy on how climate change um, um, and adapting to climate change is being treated by government, by the government of Israel. Israel is very much interested in uh, increasing the resilience and the adaptive capacity of its own population, even the ones residing illegally on occupied territory, uh, while at the same time ensuring that the Palestinian population is uh, carrying the burden of the impacts of those climatic changes because Israeli um, uh, officials, they know that the impacts of climate change are taking place. They know how dire these implications are going to be on communities. So they are technically adapting to climate change at the expense of the survival of nearby Palestinian communities. And this falls under a larger policy of forcibly transferring the Palestinian population outside of the occupied territory because they simply can not adapt. They simply cannot survive anymore. Mm. Um, in 2010, the Palestinian Authority developed a climate change adaptation strategy and program of action. And in 2016, the state of Palestine signed the Paris Agreement on climate change, along with another 174 p parties at the United Nations in New York. 
Um, given all the indicators that you've been mentioning, how effective has the Palestinian authorities' efforts been in alleviating the climate and humanitarian crises in the region? Well, the adaptation um, plan that was created in 2010, um, first of all, we have to understand that the Palestinian Authority also has limited control over uh, um, land and resources. And that what's problematic about this adaptation plan is that it addresses very technical um, or proposes very technical adaptation measures that are in theory, they look very nice and they look great and they have great potential. The problem is the most vulnerable areas, which was, you know, assessed by the United Nations, the most vulnerable areas to climate change are areas that are under Israel's effective control, not under the Palestinian authorities. And while these technical proposals um, that include water harvesting tools and, and desalination units. While these technical proposals look good in theory, they are extremely difficult to implement on the ground because of the restrictions imposed by Israel. This is um, also coupled with the donors' reluctance right now to, per to implement any development projects or, or climate change adaptation projects in Area C because they are um, subject to confiscation and destruction by the state of Israel, which happens regularly in Area C. Uh, this is in relation to the adaptation plan which the Palestinian Authority was, was asked to do. I actually spoke to some of the people who were involved in the development of this adaptation plan, and they told me bluntly that this adaptation plan was um, pretty much, they knew that it was very difficult to implement it. And they had a very difficult time also not having a politicized language be in that adaptation plan. Of course, the adaptation plan does acknowledge that there is an occupation, does acknowledge that there is limited um, ability by the Palestinian Authority to be able to deal with climate change. But it also does propose technical but un um, tools that are very difficult to implement. Uh, in relation to the Palest uh, um, Palestine signing to the Paris Agreement, which Israel has also signed to, again, in theory, this is great. This is a great step for the Palestinian Authority to be joining in um, treaties. Um, and of course, for the obligations on the state to ensure that um, um, or to, to, to do anything possible in order to enhance adaptive capacities, which are which are mentioned um, consistently within the Paris Agreement, and also strengthen resilience and reduce vulnerability to climate change. But what's more important here is to acknowledge that Israel has also signed to the Paris Agreement, and Israel has obligations under the Paris Agreement, which not only it's not meeting, but it's violating uh, consistently by reducing people's ability or reducing people's adaptive, adaptive capacity. So Israel is not only not increasing or enhancing the adaptive capacities of Palestinian populations residing within its jurisdiction, but it is also preventing them actively from adapting to climate change. And again, this falls under the uh, wider policy of uh, permanent annexation of the land and also uh, the, the crime of forcible transfer of the Palestinian population. Now, looking at the big picture, I, I know that there have been a lot of comparisons made between the Israeli settler state 
and the uh, the Canadian settler state with indigenous peoples and and these general these larger um, dynamics where you've got uh, colonizers and the colonized. I'm curious to know if you see any patterns in in the way uh, Israel Palestine has been uh, um, you know confronting the, the these twin issues of of, of both the, the colony the colonization and, and and climate change and and any implications for the way uh, you know we in the West uh, are confronting uh, the the climate change and these uh, larger dynamics of injustice towards uh, marginalized peoples is that uh, can you comment on on whether there's a a lesson here a case study if you will that could help us uh, address not just environmental justice but social justice in uh, in north america um do you mean resemblance between the indigenous people's struggles okay i definitely see um a lot of colonial patterns here. And even if we look at um, the colonial powers all over the world and the strategies that are used, and even the strategies that were used uh, against the Jewish population um, in Europe, um, we can definitely see a lot of similarities in relation to, if we want to call, if we want to um, specifically talk about the environment, environmental racism or environmental discrimination. Uh, indigenous communities in Canada uh, face um, uh, gruesome and and um, um, very unjust and and um, just very unjust environmental uh, implications um, because of the settler colonial uh, dynamic. Uh, Of course, the situation is not identical because Palestine, uh, we're talking about a very prolonged occupation, one of the longest occupations in modern history. So we have not reached the level of um, um, reconciliation, let's say, or even living within within one state. This is a this is a situation of of um, uh, occupation and settlers illegally um, residing in land. But if we want to look at the resemblance, yes, environmental injustice has been used against indigenous populations in order to coerce. Uh, their environment or coercing, uh, creating coercive environments for indigenous populations. It has contributed to uh, poverty within or high poverty rates within the indigenous population um, or the indigenous community, different communities across Canada. Um, we see systematic uh, discrimination in policy. Uh, against indigenous people in Canada, but also against indigenous people in Palestine. Uh, so the the resemblance that we can see um, um, just looking at historic events of colonialism, we can see great resemblance in discrimination and in racism and in, in, in ensuring that indigenous populations carry the burden of environmental injustice and environmental implications um, more than settler colonials do. Um, so the protection of the settler colonial population comes at the expense of the survival um, of the indigenous population. So there's definitely a resemblance. If you're asking about a case study, there are multiple case studies that we have documented in the occupied territory in relation to um, um, discrimi- discriminatory policies, for example, um, in relation to some industries that are operating 
in the occupied territory that are operated by illegal settlements. Um, but the Palestinian communities nearby are, are suffering incredible health uh, issues. One example is the Tulkarim Gishuri uh, factories that um, have caused air pollution um, to the point where uh, nearby communities had to evacuate, Palestinian communities had to evacuate because they have had uh, respiratory problems um, that were simply you're unable to cope with. Actually, in fact, when we visit these communities, we have to wear masks because it is extremely dangerous to inhale that air. Uh, nearby settler communities do not bear that impact because the uh, the the factories were actually operating um, depending on the direction of the wind. The times of of, uh, of the factory's operation hours depended on the direction of the wind. So if the wind was blowing against the Israeli settler communities, the factory was not allowed to operate. But if it was blowing against the Palestinian and the direction of the Palestinian communities nearby, this is when the factory was to operate. And this is just one example of, of uh, an environmental discriminatory policy related to the industry and the settler co colonial state. Mm. Suhajar, I really want to thank you for sharing these insights with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking with Suha Jarar. She's a Palestinian human rights researcher and advocate and a researcher at Al-Haq Human Rights Organization in Ramallah, Palestine. She joined us from Regina. Al-Haq has started a campaign called Gaza 2020. The UN has stated that Gaza will be unlivable in 2020 for the nearly 2 million Palestinians in Gaza. Israel's persecution and collective punishment has already made life there unbearable. To learn more, please visit www.alhaq.org. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. This past summer, activists from countries around the world, including Canada, took part in the 2018 Freedom Flotilla, a peaceful, nonviolent action aimed at breaking Israel's blockade of Gaza and bringing vital supplies to Palestinians on the territory. On July 29th, the flotilla ship Al-Ada was intercepted and boarded by Israeli soldiers. The passengers and crew would report being assaulted, threatened, and detained, and their cargo and personal effects stolen. They would remain in detention for four days. One of the passengers was Larry Commodore, a longtime indigenous rights activist and former elected chief of the Suwali community of the Stolo Nation near Vancouver. Larry cited the similarities between his experiences as a First Nations man in the Canadian settler state and the realities of Palestinians under occupation as a motivation for his involvement in Palestinian solidarity activism. He joined us by phone from the Suwali community where he lives to tell us what he witnessed and experienced during the ordeal. Well, again, we were expecting uh, them, and uh, the night before, uh, we were actually singing and sitting on the, uh, the uh, bow of the ship and having a good time together, and uh, we knew that they were going to you know, be coming down and actually talk a bit about what jail might be like and that so forth. Uh, when uh, it started coming down the next day, uh, I was uh, I was uh, by the wheelhouse uh, listening to the radio communication with uh, with the Israeli Israeli Navy uh, 
that we were we were telling us that uh, that uh, we were a threat to Israeli security, and that uh, they were telling us to uh, to uh, turn around. Uh, uh, we told them that we were in international waters, that we had no intention of going to Israeli waters, uh, and that uh, we had the right of innocent passage. Uh, we went that way back and forth for I don't know how long, half an hour or so. Uh, at that, at some point, there the uh, the captain of our our boat, uh, Herman Ruxton, uh, advised us to, to start getting prepared for the, being attacked by Israelis. So I went down down deck and uh, alerted everybody that, uh, that to get ready, get ready. The Israelis are coming. Uh, Going to the bathroom, get something to eat. Do whatever you have to do to get ready. The Israeli commandos boarded quite quickly. I was surprised at that, how quickly they were able to, uh, to board and, and uh, start attacking our people at the, uh, that were at the wheelhouse. Could and you talk about their that, use of force against the uh, the crew and the passengers? Yeah, that's what got me going there because, as I said, I didn't have a good view, but I did see some of them uh, knocking our, our, our guys uh, on, on, onto the deck there, the commandos were, and, uh, and that got me quite upset then. Uh, I did, as I said, I didn't have a good view, but uh, any fear that I had now is just uh, just washed away by, by the anger, because I heard yelling and screaming going on, and uh, and uh, so I was quite angry at, uh, at what, was, uh, what was transpiring. I, again, I didn't have a good view of what exactly was going on. And I didn't know, I uh, didn't find out until later on what exactly happened there because uh, uh, several of our folks were uh, tasered. Uh, were, were, uh, one of our folks had a broken foot and they started stomping on people's feet at, uh, that were around the wheelhouse, too. Uh, they, uh, they, uh, um, and then they got the captain, uh, Herman uh, Lexington. Uh, and they started beating on him. The boat was stopped at that point, and they wanted uh, the boat. Uh, they wanted the captain to start the boat again. But apparently, it's a bit of a process to start the boat, and then you have to go down to the engine room. And uh, and so they brought him down to the engine. The captain down to the engine room and got the engineer. Told the engineer to start the boat, and the engineer said no. Nope. So they started beating on. They started beating on the uh, on the captain again, and. And told the engineer if they don't have to start the boat, they're going to continue beating the captain. And they even threatened the captain with uh, execution, too. Uh, so uh, after the threat, after the beating of the, of the captain, the engineer just uh, started the boat after that. The ship and its passengers were taken to the Ashdod naval base in Israel after a six-hour journey. Larry reports that passports, wallets, and other personal effects were seized by the soldiers. He said he would not voluntarily leave the Al-Ada until those belongings were returned to him. They, uh, I just, the last thing I remember is happened that they, they put, in, they put uh, uh, handcuffs. They had me on the desk and they put handcuffs in, uh, on, my, on my hands there, Peter, on my back. And then that's all I remember. I was told by the shipmates that they had dragged me off the, uh, they were quite violently had dragged me off the, off the ship, and that I had a gash on my foot there, and, and there was a lot of blood uh, coming out. Uh, but they brought me to, they ended up bringing me to the hospital because of the gash on my foot. 
and it was painful, and it came to I didn't know where I was, I didn't know how I got there, I was in a total disease, and then, uh, and then I just uh, went unconscious again, and uh, when I came to, uh, I was in Devon Prison, and uh, there was a bit of a blur there, I don't remember much of the, uh, the first few hours at, at Devon. While in detention, Larry would discover that his bladder had been injured during the melee, leaving him unable to urinate. The discomfort was sufficiently intense that he indicated he was in no condition to take part in a proceeding in front of an immigration judge, nor was he able to travel back to Canada. After two days, officials relented and sent him to a hospital. However, the guard escorting him seemed insensitive to his plight. They had guard that they brought him to the hospital. He didn't believe that I had a... a, a bladder problem at all. So at the hospital, he was forcing me to drink more water. Uh, he forced me to drink about eight, eight glasses of water. Then he brought me into the bathroom, uh, told me to uh, told me to urinate. Uh, I unzipped and I couldn't urinate. He was standing right behind me at the time too. I unzipped and I couldn't, uh, again, I couldn't uh, urinate. Uh, and then uh, I told him that. You're playing games with me. You're playing games with me. And then he got me to play, drink more water, and I still, still wasn't able to, to, to urinate. So he, uh, he kind of gave up on that. The guard kind of gave up on that. He got me back into the, the hospital again. And, uh, and uh, then uh, after a while, the doctor uh, came and realized that there was a problem, and he put a catheter on me, and uh, I was able to talk to you after that, mm. and uh, I was brought back to the hospital, uh, to a prison, uh, I had leg shackles on, uh, when they were bringing me from the hospital, and I had leg shackles on, and the guard kept on uh, yelling at me, walk faster, walk faster, uh, even though I didn't able to walk very fast, and I was also carrying the, the urine bag too, and Larry got deported from Israel the day after his hospital visit. He saw doctors in Toronto and was returned to his home on the west coast of Canada. After three weeks of bed rest, he reports an almost complete recovery from his ordeal. Have you approached the Canadian government? Uh, what are they saying about these, uh, you know, these actions taken by the Israeli uh, forces against uh, you? Well, yeah, well, it's, uh, I did have a, a meeting with the Canadian consulate when I was in, uh, in Israel, and uh, I, again, I was, it was kind of blurry then, too. I still wasn't in very good shape, uh, and uh, I don't think I realized before I realized that the bladder issue, too, when I seen the consulate. Uh, they, they, they didn't really, really work too helpful at all, and they just seemed to be, go along with the Israeli line that the uh, that I was being a threat to the Israeli security, and uh, and uh, then they gave me a phone number for them, and uh, since I didn't have access to the uh, to a phone, uh, it didn't do me any good, uh, and I haven't been I wasn't too impressed with them at all. It seems quite daunting what uh, the Israel, what the Palestinians are facing, but uh, like Doctor Sri Ang who was with us and who was a long-time Palestinian supporter and who had seen the Saba Shatila massacres as a witness to the massacres in 1982. 
Uh, she said she was inspired by the Palestinians, their resilience, how they were able to continue on in the face of uh, all sorts of uh, murderous oppression. Uh, and that's what inspires me as the Palestinians themselves, how they were able to continue on. And so I think that, uh, as I say, my, I'm a, the reason I was there is because I felt it was my duty to be challenging the oppressor. And I think that everybody should be everybody's duty. Every, every, every decent person, every person of conscience, uh, it should be their duty to stand up to challenge Israel and the way that the murderous oppression that is, is inflicted upon, on, on, on the Palestinians in Gaza in particular, too. So we've got to create a better world for all of us, for all, everybody. That was Larry Commodore, indigenous activist from Suwali community of the Stolo Nation near Vancouver. For more details about the Freedom Flotilla and a petition to the Canadian government to address Israel's actions against the Al-Ada passengers, please visit the site canadaboatgaza.org. Next up, we'll hear from a prominent Palestinian solidarity activist and journalist about Canada's complicity in Israeli breaches of international law. Please stay tuned. Dimitri Lascaris. He is a lawyer, journalist, and activist. He's a board member of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East and a former justice critic on the shadow cabinet of the Green Party of Canada. Thanks so much for joining us, Dimitri. There are um, violations of international law being committed by Israel that even the Canadian government uh, acknowledges are violations. Could, could we just uh, get, uh, first of all, bottom line, the things that we can all agree are clear violations of international law. Sure. Uh, so when you say all agree, I mean, uh, as you can imagine, Israel contests that these are violations of international law. But the ones I'm about to mention are almost universally acknowledged, including by Canada's government, to be international humanitarian law violations. The first one, and the one that I think is most obvious, is the settlement's uh, the Jewish-only settlements that Israel has been constructing since 1967 in the West Bank, which is occupied territory and international law, uh, they have continued to expand. Uh, there are now hundreds of thousands of Israelis living in ethnically exclusive communities in the West Bank, in occupied territory. And uh, the Israeli government has invested enormous resources in facilitating that uh, settlement. And the result for the Palestinian people is that they have they now reside in the West Bank in a series of highly disconnected and atomized uh, Bantu stands, effectively. Um, another one is the use of collective punishment. Uh, so, for example, when someone is accused by Israel of having committed a terrorist attack, a standard uh, tactic or response of the Israeli government is to destroy that person's home. Uh, there's one case I'm personally very familiar with, but there are hundreds of cases of this. Uh, there, there's a family in East Jerusalem, who's, one of whose members was accused of a terrorist attack in a settlement in East Jerusalem. And the Israeli government, several months after the person had been killed in the course of the alleged attack, destroyed the home and rendered nine children plus various other adult members of the family homeless. So that's collective punishment. It's a clear violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Another one is, although the Canadian government hasn't actually acknowledged this, it's certainly been uh, very well done. Israeli human rights. Um, so those are just three uh, that uh, are 
clear violations of international law. And when the, and, and the settlements in particular, uh, those are clearly a war crime under the uh, Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. So we're talking here about an extraordinarily grave breach of international humanitarian law. Uh, and the Israeli uh, government, uh, you know, comes up with various legal machinations to try to justify its conduct or flat out denies the factual underpinning of the allegation. But at the end of the day, the evidence is very clear and no penalty has been imposed by the international community on Israel for any of these violations. As, as I understand it, the, the Trudeau government has actually uh, shown more diplomatic support for Israel than, uh, than previous governments. Yes, and this is uh, actually in a very helpful manner, but for all the wrong reasons, detailed in an article uh, by Liberal MP Anthony Housefather in the Canadian Jewish News uh, that was published on August 28th of this year, just a couple of weeks ago. And in that article, I, I have no reason to doubt the figures that Mr. Housefather cites, um, he examines the voting record of various Canadian governments over the past 15 years at the United Nations when the General Assembly has, uh, has weighed uh, what he terms anti-Israel resolutions. Basically, this is just resolutions criticizing Israel's human rights violations that are not backed up by any kind of sanctions, so they're more or less symbolic. He said, according to his research, that the Trudeau government has voted against 87% of those resolutions. Um, and, and, and by the way, these are resolutions that have been overwhelmingly supported by the international community, and the only countries voting against them almost invariably are the United States, Israel, and Canada, and four or five very tiny island states that are pretty much beholden to the United States. So 87%. Uh, he said that according to his figures, his research, the Harper government uh, has voted against or during the eight years of power, uh, approximately, it voted against something in the range of 65%. And the Martin government voted in, uh, I can't remember the precise figure, but it was substantially less than the Harper government. And the Katyan government voted against only 3%. So there was a very sharp increase in Canada's opposition to these resolutions under Paul Martin. It accelerated under Stephen Harper, who up until his government was widely perceived in the international community as the most pro-Israel prime minister in Canadian history. And then the, the Trudeau government has taken it up a substantial notch, and the only government uh, other than Israel that's voting more in opposition of these, uh, these resolutions is the Trump administration. Uh, and, and they're just slightly ahead of the Trudeau government at around 90%, according to Mr. Housefather's own figures. So, you know, it's, it's remarkable that Justin Trudeau who promised, you know, to be a more honest broker and more even-handed in his dealings with the uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict is actually substantially more pro-Israel than Stephen Harper at the United Nations. Could you talk about some of the uh, the deeper levels of support for for Israel, uh, the uh, economic and, and military links that are, uh, you know, help basically uh, helping the Israeli uh, occupation. Sure. Uh, you know, Canada in the late 1990s uh, entered into a free trade agreement with Israel. Um, and this summer, uh, something like 10 days after the Israeli military, a sniper uh, on the border of Gaza shot Canadian doctor Tarek Lubani in both legs while he was standing in the open in a clear, on a clear day, tending to wounded, unarmed Palestinians who had been shot by Israeli snipers. Ten days after that attack on a Canadian doctor, the 
Canadian government announced with much fanfare that it was entering into what it called an enhanced Canada-Israel free trade agreement. And under this agreement, the Canadian government is doing something that is a clear violation under Article 1 of the Fortunata Convention. That article says that all the high contracting parties have an obligation both to respect the convention and to ensure respect for the convention. So that means that they themselves not only have to respect it, but they have to take positive steps to ensure that other high contracting parties, which include Israel, respect that convention. So what Canada is doing under the Canada-Israel Free Trade Agreement is it is according preferable tariff treatment to products that are being produced in Israel's illegal settlements in the West Bank, which, as you can imagine, is making those products more marketable internationally. It's increasing business opportunities for uh, businesses operating in these illegal settlements. And not only that, but Canada, uh, the Canadian government, uh, recently reversed a decision of the Canadian Food Inspection Agency that required certain beverages, principally wine, to be labeled uh, other than as product of Israel, because in Canada, these wines being produced in legal settlements are currently labeled falsely as product of Israel. When the CFIA took that decision last year, in the middle of last year, it came under intense pressure from advocates for Israel in Canada, and within less than 24 hours, the Canadian government reversed that decision. So you now have a situation where not only are these products coming out of these illegal settlements to constitute a war crime being sold in Canada with preferential tariffs, but in addition, the Canadian government is allowing them to be mislabeled. This is a blatant violation of Canada's obligations under Article 1 of the Fort Geneva Convention. Uh, under the military side, Canada is engaged in a range of uh, uh, trade with Israel uh, in terms of military hardware. Uh, it's not huge because the needs of the Israeli military are met largely by U.S. military contractors, uh, but it is significant for a country of Israel's size. And in addition, the Canadian government just announced, again, this is after the shooting of Dr. Tarek Lubani and the killing of well over 160 unarmed protesters in Gaza this summer, uh, it announced that it was entering into a new cybersecurity agreement with the state of Israel. And for me, the most troubling thing and I think this is maybe part of that cybersecurity initiative, but it's very clear from the statements of Canadian officials that the Canadian government is working very cooperatively and in a very non-transparent way with the U.S. or with the Israeli military on the development of artificial intelligence. And I think it's fair to say, based on reports in the Israeli press, that one of the applications of this artificial intelligence capacity that is being developed is our military in nature. Uh, so, for example, using artificial intelligence in the occupation, in the battlefield, or what Israel perceives to be the battlefield. So, you know, both from a military perspective, from a technological perspective, and certainly from a commercial perspective, a civilian commercial perspective, Canada is at substantially uh, enhancing Israel's ability to maintain the occupation and to continue to violate international law. I, I am curious, especially when you point out the uh, the wine labeling issue, where they you know initially it was recognized that uh, you, these were inappropriately labeled wines, but then the higher ups, you know, shadowy figures or whatever, basically overturned that decision effectively, and it it, it makes me wonder like what are the the principal factors uh, that are interfering with, with Canada's ability or the Canadian officials' ability to adhere to the law? Are, are they economic? Are they political? Or, uh, you know, what, what is the, uh, the threat that uh, 
you you don't see it with regard to the you know criticizing Saudi Arabia, but uh, you know Canada seems to be sticking to its guns. But where it comes to Israel, I get the impression they're just kowtowing to some sort of authority. So what what are the factors involved that are uh, principally redirecting its ob- from its uh, away from its obligations? Well, clearly it's not the national interest. Uh, you know, there's no interest in Canada being seen to be. Uh, enthusiastically supporting in every conceivable respect a habitual, perennial, egregious violator of human rights. And in fact, uh, Stephen Harper's support for the state of Israel was so uh, extreme uh, that, you know, it was widely believed, and I think with much justification, that Canada was deprived of a seat at the United Nations Security Council. The United Nations Security Council is certainly one of the most influential actors in the international arena, if not the most influential. Uh, and it was not, could not conceivably be argued to have been in Canada's interest that we were deprived of seat on that important body. Um, and, and just our, our, our international standing generally is suffering considerably, particularly in the Muslim and Arab world and in the developing world more largely, because of our uh, almost fanatical support for the state of Israel. Um, you know, why, I think it's a complex question. I certainly think that part of the story is that uh, Canadian elites feel, uh, you know, a historical responsibility uh, to the Jewish people. And in, this is entirely understandable uh, because of the horrors that were inflicted on the Jewish people uh, by Europeans. What is not understandable, and it's one of the great scandals of our time, as Noam Chomsky has noted, is that an innocent people, the Palestinians, are being made to pay for the heinous crimes of Europeans against the Jewish people. Um, so, you know, while the guilt is understandable, and it certainly is a factor, I think, in Canadian government policy towards Israel, the way in which that guilt is being uh, mollified is in itself a moral outrage. But on top of that, I think you have the fact that Western military planners, NATO military planners, view the Middle East as being an extremely valuable uh, region of the world for Western forces to control. And I think there's a general antipathy, any form of resistance to U.S. slash NATO hegemony in the region. And and Israel effectively acts as a massive Western military base in the middle of the world's richest conventional uh, producing, oil producing region. Uh, You know, anytime anybody gets out of line, not anytime, but frequently anybody is perceived to get out of line and to, uh, you know, Pose, uh, offer any kind of resistance to American hegemony in the region, Israel will oftentimes use military force uh, to put them in their place. And there's a variety of other hammers that are being employed, but certainly Israel is one of them. And I think there's also, of course, the Israel, the pro-Israel lobby is very well funded, very well organized, uh, and any politician who does not uh, exhibit uh, a significant degree of fealty towards the state of Israel is mercilessly attacked in Canada, and not just in Canada, we're seeing this right now in the United Kingdom with Jeremy Corbyn, a man who has devoted his entire life to the fight against racism, and who's on the verge of forming a government, the first really progressive government in England in a very long time, Britain in a very long time, is being uh, relentlessly attacked as an anti-Semite by the uh, Israel lobby. And, And not only in the UK, organizations here in Canada uh, for example, the Center in, uh, for Israel and Jewish Affairs are routinely vilifying Jeremy Corbyn as an anti-Semite with no justification. So this lobby 
you know, it's not, it, 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 it works in a coordinated way internationally. It's very well funded. It's very heavily supported in a variety of ways by the Israeli government that spends billions of dollars on propagandizing, you know, Western voters. Uh, so that is having a very major effect. I think a lot of politicians uh, in the West live in fear of being subjected to the kinds of attacks that Jeremy Corbyn has seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that certainly is having a uh, a major impact on our policy. And I, I think the final thing is that the military uh, industrial complex, major military contractors have an interest in seeing conflict in the Middle East. They have a tremendous amount of influence over Western government policy. Uh, they don't want to see peace break out across the region. Uh, that would be very expensive to them. Okay. Uh, so I think they're influencing government policy as well. Okay. Just uh, maybe one last question. You can be quick uh, if you could. Um, you know, for Canadians who who wish to see a a, a changing of this uh, this whole order, what what are the mechanisms that you would recommend? A boycott, divestment, sanction, or just trying to right vote in the right election, uh, vote right right parties, or uh, what are mechanisms that we could use to uh, to reverse the state of affairs and and hold Israel accountable? Well, the the only way Israel's uh behavior is going to change for the better is if it is held accountable. And that means that there have to be, meaning, at a minimum, at a minimum, meaningful economic penalties imposed upon Israel. I don't think that there's any hope in the near term of governments in the West imposing such penalties and, uh, you know, stopping their support for Israel in international institutions. But what can happen is that civil society can boycott uh, Israeli goods and services. That is that is the potential to have a major impact, and if that movement grows to a sufficient, you know, critical mass, I think eventually government policy will follow it. The politicians will be led by the nose to actually do the right thing. But civil society, absolutely, I think the number one thing people can do is to boycott goods, particularly goods that are made in Israel settlements, but really the goods and services of any corporation, whether it's Israeli or Western, that is complicit in Israeli human rights violations. And I think secondarily, you know, we have to demand of our politicians that they actually uh, respect their own words. You know, our, our government has been saying for decades, Canada will always stand up for human rights. Well, it's time for us to demand of our politicians that they do that, not just with respect to Israel, but with respect to all human rights fighters like Saudi Arabia. We have a government that's selling billions of dollars of weapons to Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, we have to demand, uh, and that means withholding our campaign contributions and withholding our votes and withholding our volunteer hours when they come to us and they ask us to help them campaign, uh, unless and until they actually respect their own commitments to respect human rights. Dimitri, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Pleasure. We've been speaking with Dimitri Lascaris, lawyer, journalist, and activist, and board member of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program each week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is available for download from the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. We'll return with another broadcast in seven days. Thank you for joining us.